Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the Underwater Sunshine Podcast. My name is Adam Duritz and I'm here with my friend, compatriot, and other things that describe him. <laughs> James Campion. The one, the only. Thank you. Unless there's another one. How are you? I'm, I'm pretty good. I, I just got back from a brief trip to California. I went to a Cal game. Uh, I We had a, a, a gig out there and... I went up to uh, visit the first harvest. Some friends and I bought a winery, and we are trying to make wine. I went to visit, like, to see a lot of the process of what we're doing and uh, visited the various plots where our grapes are coming from, and uh, and we'll see. I don't know. I just, uh, as, a, as a, I have a lot of experience with drinking. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I was going to say you're an enthusiast, of but you could say yes, you're, you're in a drinking. I really do get behind the drinking thing, and uh, <laughs> so we'll see. Enthusiast. You know, we're uh, we're pretty excited about it. You know, it's a big thing, and we all really thought carefully about it. But I, I think it's going to be one of the real pleasures of my life from now on. I hope uh, I could see it. If, if no one knows, I mean, you really do. Adore and study and understand wine. Nope. I just like drinking it. <laughs> and I have it. My father, I grew up with my father, had a wine cellar. I don't know that he knew a great deal about it, but he was very enthusiastic, and I was enthusiastic about stealing it. Um, and <laughs> but you now, have a wine thing here. I have wine you in my house. You could quote the top winemakers. I, I, I still love drinking. <laughs> and uh, really I, at, at this that. point in my life, you know, I, I think I love drinking wine the most. Uh, I still love beer, and I, uh, I'm i a big, big fan of tequila. I can't tell you how much I appreciate <laughs> tequila and the people who make it for bringing that into our world. Thank you. Uh, but most of all, more than anything, I think I really love wine. And uh, as an inveterate drunk, I, I thought it would be good to just make some and then have it around. Um, right. Instead of going to friends and asking me to have some of theirs. Uh, so we thought today we would just talk about some... No big theme, just ideas of things we were thinking about. And I, I, I had this memory of when I was a kid, uh, John Belushi and, and Dan Aykroyd had uh, their band, the Blues Brothers. I remember going to see them play at some clubs in the Bay Area. And, you know, they were okay. They had a lot of great musicians playing with them. Uh, Steve Cropper and Duck Steve Dunn. Steve Jordan on yeah, drums. Drummer. Crawford and Duck Dunn. Yeah. Was um, uh, what's his face there for that played with Letterman for years? Was he the keyboard player and the band leader when you saw? I them? think he played on some of it. Paul I don't Schaefer, know if he was there then. Paul Schaefer. I'm yeah. not sure. I don't remember. But what I do remember about those records is that they really introduced me to some stuff I didn't know much about. Um, Blues. Yeah, me too. Yeah. All kinds of stuff though, and some funk stuff too. And one of the albums I had was Live, um, and. They are playing. They get ready to play this song, and he says, "This is a song by Pink Floyd," and uh, no. <laughs> and and it's and he and he played this song, and oh. I knew because uh, I I don't know that I was quite the music historian. I you know I became later because I was pretty young, but I did know that there had been a Pink Floyd before the Pink Floyd I knew that the, there was a period with Sid Barrett where they were very different. I right. hadn't heard. Uh, Piper at the Gates of Dawn or the early single. So I didn't know the Sid Barrett Pink Floyd, but I knew they'd been very different from how they were when sure. I had, was into them. And they're a pretty funky band by the time we listened to them. So when I heard the song, I was like, wow, how cool is that? 
<laughs> and I remember for years telling friends, oh, you guys have no idea. Pink Floyd used to be completely different. Um, <laughs> I know where you're going with this. This is on briefcase full of blues, by the way, which is Later in life, I realized, I don't, it was before I started like really spending a lot of time in New Orleans, but later in life, I realized that it wasn't Pink Floyd at all playing the song. It's one of my favorite songs, too. I love that song. But eventually, I went looking for the original, and that's when I realized that they hadn't been saying Pink Floyd. They'd been saying King Floyd, <laughs> yes. and that this meant an entirely different thing. That King Floyd was a, a a New Orleans cat born around, I think he's born 1945, the end of World War II. Uh, grew up in New Orleans. Uh, later went out to L.A. Worked with Harold, I think Harold Batiste out there. Mm-hmm. Um, did some recording, made some records. Didn't really do much. Then came back to New Orleans and ended up getting talked in some other sessions went in for a session and it's the same session i believe with the same musicians and i'm not sure who they are that are on betty wright's mr big stuff and they actually recorded mr big stuff that day and oh, wow the same day that day in the same session mr and, big stuff and king floyd uh, recorded these two songs uh and the other one i don't know what it's called was the single there's a 45 they made and the lead single was the other song and some you know they sent it out to radio stations and dj's started playing it a little bit but at one point some dj in new orleans happened to flip it over and play the other side just to see what it was oh, I hear that story all the time, and the right? other yeah. side was groove me oh, which yeah. became a huge hit i think it's a uh, number one on the r&b charts and like number six or ten in the in the pop charts at the time right whenever this is probably 71 I think. And if I'm not mistaken, I think the Blues Brothers do kind of a reggae version of this. Do they not? I think no, they I do. Think it's kind of like Ily, I remember him screaming out uh, Dan Aykroyd's in it. They do like... Yeah, Ily Iceman. But is that on this song? I think it is. Oh, I, I think... don't know. But it's a very, very funky song. Oh, it's like this it got me really into great. King Floyd. It's one of the great funk grooves ever. I want to play a couple things by him. And you'll notice in both cases, they are just ridiculous funk grooves. And his vocal over them, you know, like he's not necessarily like... He doesn't have all the vocal range or the smooth tones or the other things that other singers have, maybe. But he is a fucking amazing singer. And he just, like, the funk in him and the the grunts. And the, in each of the songs, my favorite songs by him, at some point in the beginning of the song, he goes, Ah, sooky sooky now. Yeah, he, he does it in both of them. He keeps saying, sooky sooky now. <laughs> Um, there and, and this what what year is this recording? I think it's like 71. I'm not sure, honestly. But I think it's around okay. 71. Um but you you've got to just yeah this is a, this dig is a, into this this is not Pink Floyd as I thought for years as a child and it's funny because this is I did the same thing every song that the Blues Brothers did on that record I went and found the original like the Sam and Dave Soul Man yeah. and there's quite a few things on there right? yeah there were a number of numbers but so, most of the other ones were a little more famous this hey, was the hey, one bartender. that I didn't know about yeah me either yeah and like this I said is the they one do that, a, like and it's my favorite original. of all those songs agreed. I, I, well, I do love Hey Bartender on that record, and almost I love, with Lou Marini playing that great saxophone oh, yeah, yeah. on that. I that great record. I love that record. But you also had, who else in there? Tom Scott playing saxophone. Tom Scott, yeah. That's and, LA uh, Express. Yeah, sure. Uh, Matt Murphy on guitar. Uh, that's right, guitar Murphy. And then uh, Duck, well, he doesn't get any better than Duck Dunn. Duck Dunn's Deep uh, Cropper Steve from, Cropper. from the Booker T and the MGs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, so this is, this is Groove Me from New Orleans. Uh, just like Funkster, King Floyd. Dig this. Sucky, sucky now. <laughs> uh, oh, sucky, sucky now. Hey! Uh, come on, baby. Hey, that sugar dumplings. Let me tell you something, girl, I've been trying to say now. 
To say the very least, the bass playing on that thing is incredible. Uh, great sound. And it does sound exactly like the same session that you were talking about before. It's the not Betty Wright. It's Gene Knight. Gene. Gene Knight, Mr. Big Stuff. I don't know why I was thinking Mr. Betty Wright. Mr. Big Stuff. Um, yeah, man. It's like Tight. it's not just the bass, though. That that whole rhythm groove. The horns the are The drums fantastic. and the bass and, and the organ. It's That's a pretty magnificent... Uh, take on that. that it's so funky man and it makes perfect sense that blues brothers would cover it because they had that great uh, like horn section and they had a great bass player certainly and excellent drummer yeah that that song is fantastic i love that that is you know that early 70s sound we've played quite a few uh numbers here on the podcast over the months of like early 70s sound like that real dead sounding room great acoustic um sound of recording that i love that analog sound is just all over that Really great. That whole record is great. That that's from. Yeah. It's uh, what was I going to say? Uh, Malico Studios in uh, in Jackson, Mississippi, is where that was done. Hmm. Um, I think it was recorded. They said in late late nineteen seventy, Malico. Um, I couldn't find any information on who played on it on the uh, 
any of the listings for King Floyd and uh, Malico didn't list any credits on the Gene Knight record either. I looked that up too, trying to figure out who it was, but there's a book by Rob Bowman uh, called The Last, or it's a box set. It's the notes for it. The Last Soul Company, Malico. And they say it's Vernie Robbins on bass and James Stroud on drums. And Wardell Kazurg, who um, produced that, plays the organ on it. Oh, the Groove Me? Yeah. Yeah. And it's a crazy good you know what we should play since it's the same musicians on the same day i'm curious what it sounds like if you listen to them right next to each other we should play mr big stuff we should, well we should because it's just so cool so this is gene knight <laughs> same day same session same people mr big stuff yeah <laughs> sounding record that's yeah just, it's, it's just as funky it's, too you can it's got that boy you know what's really blew me away on that recording is the the tambourine playing because she's not just going whoever's playing is not just going they're going yeah they're like they're doing this double hit on either side of it as they shake it mm-hmm. it's a pretty precise but really funky t- tambourine's a very hard instrument to play we always joke when people come up on stage with us we'll give you anything to play except a tambourine most of the time because <laughs> it is the loudest instrument on stage because of the frequency man it's so loud yeah, yeah. and you can't give someone who doesn't play a tambourine a tambourine because yeah. they will they will wreck your song <laughs> Um, but someone, you know, I used to get knocked out in the gospel tent. There was always a woman who played with all the gospel bands in the gospel tent at the 
the Jazz and Heritage Festival in New Orleans, and I used to just like watch in awe as she played, and I really like tried to take in a lot of the things she was doing, the double hits kind of stuff. You know, when in, to shake it and how I to bring broke it back my, down. myself to play, and how, how I like sort of taught myself to play tambourine, and like that really reminded me of that. It's like a real. It's a pretty high skill instrument that people don't think of that way. Yeah, they it's could just very, it, very yeah. difficult to play well. And that was really it's like that brightness that it brings to the funk on that track. It yeah. just like lights up the song. Good point. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because the other day I was watching uh, uh, a Sting uh, perform uh, Englishman in New York in Manhattan somewhere. Uh, I was just watching a bunch of Sting videos and he did that song and he had a tambourine on his mic stand and he and that song that tambourine is very important it gets on the offbeat and he was hitting it and you could see he was as he was singing he was being very close attention not to mess up just like you said because these other musicians he had cellos on stage and he, he's hitting this thing you could tell I cannot mess this up and, uh, <laughs> and oh, he was playing Englishman in New York he wasn't playing that song he, was he wasn't singing playing Mr. Song. Big Stuff no, he was not. Okay, okay, I thought you meant he was covering that. <laughs> no, no, he was uh, singing the song Englishman in New York. <laughs> but still, he did not like, which is completely, is not a funky song at all. But uh, yes, the tambourine's very prominent, and he did not want to mess that up, and it reminded me of that. Yeah, that, that song is, it's amazing that band played on both those songs. That they, it, those are such tight, you could tell those guys play together a lot. It's a tight unit of players. Yeah. It's interesting to find something like that. Two completely different artists recording in the same studio on the same day in the same session, which means everyone else other than them is the same musician probably. Right. Uh, and to hear that the two different songs, which are which have a lot of similarities too, though, in, sure. in the, the tightness of that groove. I want to play you one more song by King Floyd because I doubt people have heard much by him. And uh, it, it's just another one of my, my very, very favorite funk songs. Uh, you know, people think of funk as like a lot of, Sometimes funk is about what you don't play. It's the holes you leave. Um, especially if you ever listen to James Brown and really listen to the band, what the JBs are playing, mm-hmm. it's insane inside out music. It's not what you think it is. You know, they're not actually playing what you thought the groove of that song was. They're playing something backwards and inside out, and they're leaving these holes where you didn't think there were holes. And uh, both of these King Floyd songs and Mr. Big Stuff really have a lot of that in it. It's just great funk playing. I'm so. Glad you mentioned that because when we we were playing the groove uh, one, I, mean, I kept saying during the groove podcast, we got to get to James Brown. We never did get to James Brown. Uh, someday we could do a whole podcast about James Brown, especially the JBs, especially that late '60s, early '70s with Bootsy and those guys. But that is so true. That I was going to mention in that podcast about how some of the songs that we were playing. It's remember we were talking about Pharrell and and how he uses different instruments, how well he uses them to to build a groove. Well, that, that's what you're saying. In a sense, it's, it's not so much what you add to it. It's what you take away and then bring back. Prince is so good at that in live bands. Like he would, he would stop he, with his hand. He could just stop one section. And it becomes a whole different groove. And you're like, wow, the guitar player is doing is totally tr- driving the song. We thought it was this when it was yeah. actually this. And that's pretty cool to see live. Yeah. Well, I mean, James Brown's pretty groundbreaking that way because he starts to hear music in a way that nobody else is hearing it before that. And, and so he starts coming up with these funk grooves that are – not the way anyone played music before that. They're, and they're even hard for his band. You know, mm-hmm. like his, his explanations of them, because they're inventing it as they go. And you can tell by the time this is, you know, Groove Me or Mr. Big Stuff or Baby Let Me Kiss You, you know, those are 71. So they had a lot of time to listen to James Brown. You know, like he's had a huge influence by this time on these other people. Sure, even his vocals in here. Yeah. yeah. Right. But anyway, let's, let's, I want to play you uh, Baby Let Me Kiss You by King Floyd. Slightly later, I think it's just a couple years later maybe. Uh, Or maybe it's on that same record. I'm not sure. Anyways, Baby Let Me Kiss You, King Floyd. 
not Pink Floyd. Yeah, another great example of what you were talking about, about what's not played. And you were just pointing it out, too, about how the bass doesn't do, like, it doesn't go, and it doesn't finish yeah, You it's... think it's going to go boom, 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 but it actually goes something like boom, 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 Yeah, yeah. It leaves a hole where you think, it's funny, because later in the song he does that, up, down, round, round, up. And that's the beat that you've been expecting right. that you hear in your head the whole. So you actually hear that beat the whole song, but they're not playing it. Yeah, it's you finish there. it in your head. You finish that. Yeah, you, you, like, you, yes. They just they make it a hole that your your like groove part of your mind falls into. Boom, right. boom. Guess boom. stuff. There was stuff like on Freddy's Dead. You know, songs like that that I listened to years later, and I was like, that wait, that doesn't go like this. That I already had in my head the way that thing goes. And it's funny because those songs are like that, you know, a great deal. What was the one you told me that blew your mind after a while? Oh, Mrs. Me and Mrs. Mrs. Oh, Mrs. Me and Mrs. Mrs. Jones. Jones. Oh, oh yeah. man. 
Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned Freddy's Dead because the other, one of the other things I was thinking about, and this is not where we were going to go here. I was going to play you a piece of uh, early Pink Floyd from that moment, but uh, what, like what Pink Floyd was also actually doing on yes. the record I was thinking of. Yes. When you mentioned Freddy's Dead, it's interesting because there's a song that I've always loved called Be Thankful for What You Got. Mm-hmm. Or I couldn't remember if it was called Diamonds in the Back or if it was called Gangster Lean. I was trying to remember the name of the song, and I, I put the lyrics into Google. Um, and what came up was, oh, it's Curtis Mayfield's song, Be Thankful for What You Got. And I looked at it, and I'm like, that's wrong. It's not a Curtis Mayfield song. There's no way. It's not. I explored a little further. I know, of course, because that's the thing. This song sounds so much like Curtis Mayfield. It's actually a guy named William Devon. And, and the song is called Be Thankful for What You Got. And, and there's like a seven-minute version, and there's a three-minute version that was a single, which I'm, which I want to play you. But this song was – he was like a really religious gospel cat who uh, – Made this record, I think he financed it himself, uh, and has this incredible single on it called Be Thankful for What You Got, which sounds so much like Curtis Mayfield, you know, a la Superfly period, you know, Freddie's Dead. Sure, sure. Pusher I, you know, I thought this was a hit. Was this not a hit? It was a hit. Yeah, but I But people this thought song. it was Curtis Mayfield, and still to this day, I mean, I Googled it. <laughs> I Googled it, and it said Curtis Mayfield. It's There's even a video with a picture of Curtis Mayfield on it for this song, but it's not Curtis Mayfield. <laughs> It's just that, you're uh, setting the record straight. That's William underwater Devon sunshine. Really sounds my like like Curtis Mayfield on this song, uh, which I thought was pretty crazy. And, you know, I probably thought the same thing, but I know this song. I just didn't know who. So he's kind of like an Al Green, you know, gospel slash soul. Well, no, he's closer to Curtis Mayfield though. He doesn't sound like Al Green at no, all. No, I mean he, like he does, he's like spiritual. And well, dominant. I mean he's very. Most of the stuff on this record is a little more religious. It actually some of the stuff charted on the the record may have charted on the gospel charts at the time. Right. Um, but uh, I just thought it's like sometime in the seventies. I can't remember the exact year. This is also early seventies, but uh, it's pretty fascinating to me that like there's a lot of this song has been sampled by Ludacris. Oh my this chorus, you'll recognize the chorus when it comes up. It's been there's a Ludacris single that has it. In it. It's in a bunch of other stuff. Uh, that's just the term because the uh, the chorus is diamonds in the back, sun rooftop. Is it? Making the scene with the gangster lean, or is it? I can't remember what the actual. Right, but yeah. but he coins the, the term "gangster lean" right in this song, which yeah, is like you know, come to mean many, many things later on. Um, uh, the gangster lean later on becomes like when you're driving through the neighborhood. If you if you're out, you got your arm out the window mm-hmm. and you're leaning like you don't care, as opposed right. to hiding in the car like a pussy. And that's the the, the gangster lean. Um, yes. But I mean, that term comes from this song, and it's it's been sampled in a million hip hop songs too. Uh, the one I think of off the top of my head is Ludacris. I'm almost certain Ludacris is the one who does it. Uh, I think you're right. But um, I want to play it for you because you're talking about Curtis Mayfield. This is uh, William Devon, not Curtis Mayfield, and also still not Pink Floyd. Uh, be thankful for what you got. This is the single version of it from 1974. Ah, thank you. Wipe walls, TV and 
bartenders in the back You may not have A car at all But remember Brothers and sisters You can still stand tall Just be thankful For what you got Though you may not drive A great big Cadillac Diamond in the back Sunroof top Digging the scene With a gangster link Gangster white walls TV antennas in the back Yes, I absolutely remember that song. And yes, I probably thought that was Curtis Mayfield. And you know, it's so funny about that because, yeah, when you mentioned Freddie's Dead and that kind of laid back and, the, and all the stuff going on there. Well, and his vocal, too. It yes. really does sound like a little like Curtis Mayfield. Keep that in mind, people. When you think something is true because you read it on the internet, that ain't Curtis Mayfield. Nope. nope. When you think something's true because you heard it on the internet, uh, that wasn't Pink Floyd <laughs> before that. <laughs> or if you heard it on a Blues Brothers record. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll get to Pink Floyd another time. But anyway, so um, one of the things that I told Adam I wanted to do when we hadn't been uh, together all summer, while he was out on the road and I was running around promoting my book, is that there was a lot of things that uh, you know I heard and doing the show, you want to just, oh, i got to play that for Adam or i got to play it on the podcast and share it with people. And um, one of the things I do for the Aquarian Weekly is I do a thing called Rock Reads, and it comes out twice a year, right before the summer and right before the holidays, where I, you know, I review six books. Some of them new, some of them old rock and roll books, uh, soul books, funk, rap, I've done them all, uh, folk, uh, biographies, that kind of thing. And right before I had to get, start calling up publishers, I got in the mail Carly Simon's memoir, uh, Boys in the Trees. And I was like, nah, do I want, okay, all right. 
And I started to read this thing. Not only is it so beautifully written, her memories of her childhood are so stark. She kept copious diaries. And she writes about her feelings for her famous father, who started uh, Simon & Schuster, and uh, who had a mental illness. Uh, Her mother, who worked very hard with her family. Her times singing with her sister, which I had been introduced to. There was a film years ago about Greenwich Village. And she's interviewed, her and her sister interviewed, and they were apparently big deal around down here, uh, playing in all this, the, the places. They met Dylan, uh, you know, Phil Oaks, the whole nine yards. They, they, they toured, they went to England, they met uh, Paul Simon and the whole thing. And I didn't know a lot of that stuff, so that got me into the book. And then, of course, James Taylor comes into the scene. Now, you remember when we were kids... That was the couple. I mean, James Taylor and Carly Simon were everywhere, the cover, cover of people. They were the rock and roll couple, and they recorded some songs together. A lot of the ones we know, like uh, they did the cover of, uh, what did they do, uh, uh, Mockingbird, and quite a few things together. Uh, they sang on each other's records. Uh, James Taylor, of course, famously dated Joni Mitchell and was there when she was recording Blue. A lot of those songs are about James Taylor. So they ended up uh, getting married, and they had two children. Uh, fast forward a couple of uh, years later, their second child, Sally, was a didn't go to sleep that easily. And Carly writes about how, and she says in the book, I've never really shared this with anybody, she used to sing this lullaby to her every night to get her to go to sleep. And it was just something she made up, a melody. So she started to put words to it and started to come together about being on the sea, tranquil, sailing. Uh, you know, I actually have it here. Uh, out of the west of Lambert's Cove, there's a sail out in the sun, and I'm on board, though very small. I'm come home and to stop yearning. Burn off the haze around the shore. Turn off the crazy way I feel. I'll stay away from you no more. I've come home to stop yearning. It's not like an old sailor's tale. Well, James Taylor was working on a song called Terra Nova about a, a gentleman who goes on a boat to go out of the Cape of Cod and just kind of clean his soul. He's, you know, there's one line in there, something like, I've got my mind in the gutter and my soul. So he's, he's kind of a damaged person who goes out. And while he was working on this song, he came home and kept hearing Carly singing this song, this little lullaby, and he goes, I have a perfect way to use it. And, of course, Carly at first was like, damn it, I wanna, <laughs> this is my song. But so they fused it onto the end of this song, and it's so beautifully done. And she said they did it in one take, and they were so good at singing together, which they did all the time when they would cook in, in the evenings and, and, and go out and work on the house that they had in, in, um, in um, Martha's Vineyard. And they just they became a singing couple, not only professionally but personally. And this song, I think, depicts it. And I kept listening to the song over and over again all summer because of that, and I just wanted to share it with you. I don't know if you are familiar with the song. I've heard JT no, no, no. Uh, quite a bit, but it's one of my favorite James Taylor songs now, and you've got to wait till the very end, even though she sings harmony with him throughout, to hear her part. Then he comes in and adds his little descant. It's really beautiful. Anyway, the name of the song is called Terra Nova from the JT album. Cool. Show me the ocean When shall I see the sea? May this day Set me in motion I ought to be on my way We were there We were sailing on the terror Sailing for the setting sun Sailing for the new horizon May this day show me an ocean I ought to be on my way 
that song but he didn't need to steal her song for that <laughs> i mean he could have left her her song it's a completely it's uh, completely different thing completely different thing and she lost her her lullaby that she was writing yep i mean she's given co-songwriting credits um that bit at the end where they both hold the harmony and that there's that wonderful waver she talks about the waver you could hear in the headphones when you're singing and you get that perfect harmony going and is that like that space that goes in um 
Yeah, I mean, that's what really makes that song for me. It, the, the, the rest of the song kind of reminds me of something that Paul Simon was doing during the, uh, the period where he was playing with that little jazz band, you know, the, uh, the, when he made that movie. Uh, what was the film that he made? One Trick Pony? One oh, Trick like Pony Richard band? T. That, he had that band for a long time. Yeah, though. yeah. Steve Gadd and Richard T. On, Richard T's on keyboard, Steve Gadd on drums. Right. I can't remember who the rest of the band is. Yeah, I think that's the one that I saw when they played, um, uh, Simon and Garfunkel played uh, Central Park was that backing band. But anyway, yeah, and um, uh, it's kind of like a sea shanty. and It's like ghostly the way she comes in. Um, but it's funny you say that because in the book, she tends to subjugate her powerful stardom for him a lot uh and you could tell even towards the end of the book and please you know read it it's it's very well done uh where she talks about uh how he haunts her still and vice versa and i i, I started doing research on on the two of them on you know youtube old interviews and somebody i think it was um he was on 60 minutes james hale about three or four years ago and they asked him he said well you probably don't want to talk about carly Simon." he goes no I, i'll talk about carly Simon." <laughs> Because I'd love to talk about her. And then they, t- they talked about her for a few minutes. And just the assumption is that they don't want to talk because they kind of ended acrimoniously. That's really kind of how it happened. But it's, in the, it's way in the history books now. But if, you're, if you grew up in the 70s, you know uh, that they were that kind of that couple that, you know, the two of them actually together overshadowed both of their careers. Definitely in that, that period of the mid-70s after they'd already become stars. Yeah, I mean, he has some big hits there with Handyman, but for me, his best stuff, I, I, I mean, I, it's weird because I think a lot of people remember James Taylor for this period that we're just playing is from. Handyman's on this record. It's a huge hit. Sure, sure. Um, and, and his stuff right then when he's a very soothing – it's funny because when you said they were the rock and roll couple, I was – I was thinking, well, I, yeah, I think Sid and Nancy would sit up and disagree with you, ex- oh, yeah. except they're dead. <laughs> well, that was years later, but at that time, yeah. When I was yeah. like 11, 10 years old, you know. It's not years later than this. This is the same year. No, yeah. This no, I know. 77, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's very true. Yeah, yeah that's 77. right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But for me, like, people think of James Taylor, and I think that, you know, there's a Lester Bangs gets all up all over James Taylor, you know, in, in the... Yeah, he says in the piece that he should be shot and killed. Yeah. But I mean, for the soothingness of him. But his early records, like the first few records, those are some dark fucking records. Oh, absolutely. He spent some time in a mental institution. He dealt with a lot of stuff in life that made him not particularly trust the world very much. Well, and Fire those... and Rain. How about that? That story of Fire and Rain, which she talks about in this, in this book, but that's a famous story. He was in England recording for Apple. So he was hanging out with the Beatles and everything, and his family found out that his old girlfriend had committed suicide. And they didn't tell him because they didn't want to, you know, kill his vibe there. You know, no pun intended. And he found out when he came home, and he was absolutely devastated. And it sent him into a spiral, really. And he was a very bad heroin addict for a long time, and he writes a lot about that. Uh, In those first two or three records, you're right, are very That record, James Taylor, the Apple record. I mean, there's a James Taylor in the... Flying Machine or something before yes. that? Yes, and he mentions it in Fire and Rain. <laughs> Flying Machine in Pieces on the Ground is the band. Um, Very good. But yeah. uh, that first record on Apple and uh, the second one, Sweet Baby James is the second one. Right, right. Fire and Rain, Sweet well, Baby James. Oh, the James, first Electra record. Country Roads. Yeah, Slim is on there. Those are the first two records. Yeah. First, other than the Flying Machine one, you know, the first right. two solo records. Really. Right. And those are... Dark, dark records. Like, there's a... That is a... He's got a lot of that Jackson Brown apocalyptic sort of sense of the world. It's sort of different, but he's just... He's very pessimistic, very dark. You know, the stuff starts to become a lot more, like, loving and friendly. I think he's probably happier 
later. Yeah. Um, but uh, he started building a house out in Cape Cod. He met Carly. They got married. He had the two children. He was still a wayward person, and he was a drug addict. But certainly those first couple albums, they, they were much – that's a good point. A lot of people don't really point that out. That, this period here where he's singing very up, happy songs, and he became sort of – and it's funny. In the Lester Bangs piece, which is – Adam's right. It's a very fa- – maybe his two most famous pieces is his, his epic about Astral Weeks yeah. and his tearing down of James Taylor, which he only uses sort of as an avatar for everything that's wrong with popular music at the time. And if you read that piece, it's really about the trogs. <laughs> it's a whole celebration about how the trogs are the greatest thing that ever happened everything else is bullshit (laughs) and james taylor is the end of the bullshit line and but he does say in there he should be killed and dragged in the back of a train it's horrifying but and then james taylor kind of becomes that guy and i even mentioned it in the in in my warren zivon book james taylor's character is the antithesis of where warren was going but the funny thing is that i think that that i'm not sure what the when when uh lester bangs is writing it He's not. That's the thing. When Lester Bangs is writing it, he's oh, not that guy. in the early guy. 70s, like 73. Yeah, because he's just written a couple devastatingly beautiful, dark albums like, right. you know, James Taylor and Sweet, Sweet Baby, Baby James, James, which are pretty yeah. fucked up records in a way. Those are like 68 and 71. So maybe by the time he's writing it, he sees where he's going and it's going to something different. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. But uh, it is that happy folk music thing that he was really tired of. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, he, I mean, he just wanted some MC5. He wanted everyone to be a little more like MC5. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. I get it. Um, yeah, I do too. I mean, that's the same reaction that punk music had a few years later. That sure. It would be better if you were all more like MC5 and fuck you all for being the way you are. Right. We're going to play some you know, different kind of music. And this gets back to what you talked about in the punk podcast, which is you all of a sudden try to break off and now you become a unit and now everyone has to be like this. And one of the things that we've brought to this podcast, one of the reasons why you and I really connected, I think, in our first interviews is because we grew up listening to a wide swath of music so we could listen to something like this and listen to the Dead Boys and appreciate both of them for what they are or appreciate really funky music because when we started to go down that funk lane, you were like, hey, let's switch it up. That's what we do here. See, I would play James Taylor after we play some really funky stuff and that's what's cool about it but yeah i mean no question about it james taylor for, for lack of you know I, I feel bad for him but he did become <laughs> sort of the symbol of the touchy-feely folky you know guys from that period of course there's many others we, we talked about jim croce uh and um uh who am i thinking of well there's a million of them but you know what i'm talking about that, and by that the time he takes on that sort of visage and he's doing things like the sort of semi-blues of uh what's that song called uh Steamroller, steamroller. Steam you know, baby. it's like it, yeah, yeah. It's 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 not his best stuff. No, you know, and it, yeah. it, uh, Cat Stevens, I'm thinking of as but well. But he's still playing, and uh, but like the Cat Stevens at his best is like the James Taylor stuff at its best. It's actually really, really great, uh, brilliantly produced folk music. Oh, I love it's, that. It's stuff. Wonderful stuff. Oh, yeah. I, you know. So the other book that I, I received in the mail this summer that I was reviewing, and I, another one I was like, eh, I don't know. Even though I love her, and I, and I, I love those early Fleetwood Mac records, um, or at least the ones that she's in the band. Stevie Nicks, uh, a new biography called Gold Dust Woman by Stephen Davis, who has uh, been a biographer for Led Zeppelin, Rolling Stones. He's done quite a few. 
I think, and the cool thing about Davis is he had done the autobiography with Mick Fleetwood, which was very controversial because it was in that book that Mick Fleetwood admitted that he had an affair with Stevie Nicks and, and the band was still together and it blew up. It was like the 50th time, you know, people were, blo- everybody knows the story of rumors where, you know, Stevie and Lindsey Buckingham, who were a duo with Buckingham Nicks, ended up joining Fleetwood Mac. Then John McVie was, was married to uh, Christy McVie. They broke up. She was cheating on him with the light guy. Buckingham and Nicks broke up. She, then Stevie Nicks was, uh, you know, had an affair with Mick Fleetwood. It, it was a crazy mess, but they wrote some of the most powerful and certainly powerful, uh, excuse me, popular music of the early 19, the mid-1970s. But this book was, the one thing I learned from this book about Stevie is that I think of Stevie Nicks as having that, she's, she's, she was always sick on tour. Always, she was frail, small, always ill, always getting like bronchitis. She always pushed her vocals stronger in the early, early days of Fleetwood Mac. Later on, she has that ethereal sound like Dreams and Sarah and uh, Gypsy later on. I always think of Stevie Nicks in that way, what the kind of stuff that she did with Warren Zevon in the background with Tom Petty. But he talks a lot. Davis talks a lot about the early days when she used to do Rhiannon, which is the first song she wrote for that Fleetwood Mac, that new Fleetwood Mac. And they worked on that song for, for weeks and weeks to get it right. There's different sections of it. And she always felt like the pressure of having to sell that song. And she apparently shredded her voice so badly they had to cancel huge chunks of that first tour. She would never, ever not give it her all. So, of course, me, uh, whenever I read a book like that or see a documentary, I'm diving in, right? I'm listening to nothing but Fleetwood Mac for like three weeks this July or August, whatever it was. And I started listening to live Fleetwood Mac. Now, have you ever seen Fleetwood Mac? I never did. No, but I've listened to a lot of their live stuff. I mean, I have bootlegs and uh, those great deluxe editions that have incredible amounts of live stuff. They on. really do, and that's where I got this one from. This is a, from the deluxe edition. There's a deluxe edition from uh, of uh, Rumors and uh, Tusk. By the way, I listened to Tusk. Totally underrated record. Totally underrated. I really like Tusk. Oh, I don't think the problem with Tusk is that it's not a good record. It's just... That it's not as good as Fleetwood Mac or Rumors. That's right. You know, there's great stuff on Tusk, great but it's a little stuff. sprawling, and there's also some. There's nothing on the first, on those other two albums that isn't perfect. In fact, they left songs off that are better than anything. They left uh, Silver Springs off of Rumors. That's a better song than most people will ever write in their lives. Yeah, it's a great song, and that got left off. Right. Um, you know, I mean, but by Tusk, they've got a lot of extra. They're not leaving anything off. Right, you got a ton of extra material, and, and it, you know it's it's just it's the fact that this what a big it's not a big crime to not be as good as two of the best albums ever made. Sure, you know what I mean okay, right? You know it's uh, yeah yeah we talked about it with Suzanne Vega. Okay, I didn't sell two million copies. I told a million copies. Uh, but you know the only funny thing about Silver Springs is a great story about that. She wrote that song, and her mother gave her a couple of lines. And she gave her mother songwriting credit. And she calls her mother and she says, Mom, you're going to be on a Fleetwood Mac record? We're going to sell millions? They left it off for rumors. The woman would have been a multimillionaire. And so for years, Stevie Nicks was really pissed at the rest of the band for that. And eventually they ended up putting it on the uh, – I think it was a B-side of one of their songs on that record. And then then it ended up being on – on compilations, but it would never, as, as Adam said, it never made it on rumors. But anyway, so I wanted to play, there's two versions of them doing Rhiannon, as Adam pointed out to me, on this deluxe box set of the first Fleetwood Mac record uh, with Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks. And this is a version of them doing Rhiannon um, at Burbank Studios. So it's in front of, I guess, like uh, industry insiders or something. But th- listen to the way she's singing this. It's To me, it's unlike anything... This is like a 24, 25-year-old Stevie Nicks. It's like any, unlike anything – maybe she might have been in her late 20s – that I've ever heard her sing like this. And she, of course, opens up with saying this is a 
uh, a song about an old Welch witch. She was very much into the occult, which is kind of neat too, a part of the story, which I didn't know. But anyway, so here is Stevie Nicks fronting Fleetwood Mac. And this is before, you know, they really blew up. So this is kind of cool and a very tight band. January 27th, 1976 at Burbank Studios. This is a song about an old Welsh witch. Rhiannon rings like a bell through the night. Darkness. 
Yeah, you know, that's that's a fantastic song. I love the we were talking about it during. There's an amazing thing on these records about Lindsey Buckingham's guitar playing. It is so searing, but the way he produced it and the, the fact that he sits it back in the band and he is absolutely tearing the shit out of his guitar on all the songs on both those records. But weirdly, something about the way it is melodically and how he sits it in the song, it doesn't stick out in a jagged way. It's just part of the song, like a string section in a weird way. He he wanted it to be just work as part of the song and not, not to stick out, and it doesn't. It's amazing, but he's tearing the shit out of his guitar. On that, that solo, I like the breakdown, and her and Mick playing off each other in at the end, and the outro of Rihanna in there is pretty... The drums in her with this little, just the little snare shots, and her, like, jagged gulped out vocals you know i was gonna say one thing because i read about we were talking about silver springs a minute ago because i you know to me silver springs is one of the great songs they ever wrote and i guess she was you know they Lindsay buckingham produced it and they you know they did all the recordings and they were mixing it and putting it together and she was away somewhere and you got to remember we don't have cell phones then you know so yeah. just like Paul Simon could come back and not paul simon paul mccartney could come back and find all those strings, strings on stuck uh, on his stuff yeah uh, Long and Winding Road and his other songs on uh, Let, Let It Be, be. Yeah. Uh, you know, and have been out of touch. Sure. Somehow she was too. And she came back and she was furious that her song had been left off. Mm-hmm. And But he, Lindsey Buckingham said something in his defense that I read at one point, which is that, what were we going to do? I was just trying to make it, you know, there were three main songwriters in the band. I wanted to have us each get songs, you know, like... 
It's not like I took more for myself. I have three. Stevie has three. Christine ends up with four. Christine McVie. But you think about the songs. You know, Christine McVie gets... Uh, and by the way, the record's perfect, so there's the first argument. Yeah, I mean... What are you going to put, you know, yank r- r- off of that? Christine McVie has Don't Stop. Don't Stop Thinking About That. That's Fantastic. a massive hit. Huge hit. She has Songbird, one of the... Beautiful Beautiful song. song. Agreed. Songbird is singing. I mean, uh, she has You Make Love and Fun, massive hit. Big hit. And uh, and Oh Daddy, which is a beautiful, stark song. Absolutely. Okay? Uh, Lindsay has Secondhand News, which opens the record. is a spectacular song. Right, the huge, the biggest hit, except for Dreams. On Never Going Back Again, which is that acoustic tour de force that he plays. Right, uh, right. And uh, and go your own way, which was the big, Again, huge, first massive, hit. massive huge. hit, and that broke them. Yeah, yeah. and uh, Stevie has dreams, dreams. huge hit, uh, Gold Dust Woman, I think is uh, on that, right? Gold Dust Woman and I Don't Want to Know, which, which is three is great song. songs. Yes, you could maybe, and then of course the chain, which is written by all five band members, right. is on the record as well. So you basically got three songs by Lindsay, three songs by Stevie, four by Christine, and one by the whole band. Right, you know that's the eleven songs on the record. Um, uh, you know his thing was like I just. I honestly didn't know what to leave off, and right. I guess in his mind, the other three were more important to Stevie. Um, yeah, and the other thing, too, is that Stevie's thing with her mom was a big part, but also, the you, you nailed it. You said, you know, if someone had done... Now, it's different. They didn't mess with her song. They just left it off the record, but they didn't tell her. She didn't know about it until she saw the acetate through mastering that, you know, which is, you know, they make a record, they do the true track, then they send it to master. Once it's mastered, it's going to go get pressed back in the day, pressed into records. And she didn't know about it until later. Maybe that's her fault, too. She was sort of out of it. A, there was a lot of cocaine used during this time by these members. There was a lot of infighting. Uh, Lindsay and obviously her were on the outs, so she took that as a personal stab. But there's no question about it. Silver Springs is one of her finest, finest songs. And and that's one thing I learned about Stevie Nicks from reading that book, which I probably already knew because I lived through this. Stevie Nicks is an incredible female uh, representative for great rock and roll. She had amazing solo albums, two or three really great big hit solo albums, and some of her songs were the biggest ones that they had, this band. I mentioned Gypsy. I me- we just mentioned Dreams. Uh, Sarah, which was the only hit, really, except for Tusk, I guess, off of Tusk. Um, but by the same token, some of their biggest hits were written by the other two as yeah, well. Yeah, Christy McVie. pretty evenly fit. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, Lindsay wrote, I mean, Go Your, Go own, your own Way. way. That's yeah. a, about as big a hit as they ever had. It's um, true. And Christy McVie had two, as you mentioned, two huge hits off this record and another one off of another record. If you haven't in a while, it's worth going back to the first, not the first record, but the, the first of these two records in the middle of their career, Fleetwood Mac, and also the Rumors. And just, you know, we've heard these songs so much. Because they're, you know, Rumors for the Longest Time was the biggest album of all time. Fleetwood Mac was huge. We've heard them so much that they don't make much of an impression on you at times. They're just there. But if you listen to them, like, as an album, you will be stunned at how strong... The quality. Song after song after song. There's just never a break in these records. I mean, like we said... They're leaving off stuff like Silver Springs, which, you know what? I'm going to play it for them. Because, we should play Silver Springs. I mean, the other thing about it is, in her defense, that Silver Springs might be the rawest song about the two of them that she wrote. Oh, that's the other there. thing. That's it, right. It is very she much said about the two of them. said you left it off because it's ripping it you pretty good. And but so is Go Your Own Way. Well, he, All you want to do is shacking up. and then Well, no, she, but he didn't leave Go Your Own Way off. That's what I'm, that's what I'm trying yeah. to say. He left that on. But then he said her point was you probably left off Silver Springs because it's so personal. You know what's such a thing? No, but Silver Springs is her personal. Yeah, yeah. He left it off. <laughs> but it, he's the Go producer. Go Your Own Way is his personal. Right. And he put it on. But he's I the mean, producer. they're all personal because they're all falling apart at that point. Christine McVie and John McVie are falling apart. Yeah, don't, you know, don't a, stop 
office for him. This it, is an intense, intense record about uh, with couples who are splintering and falling apart and sleeping with each other. Correct. Uh, outside of their relationships, as they're recording it, and they're all writing songs about each other, and it's they're brutally painful songs. The really incredible part about this is the production that Lindsey Buckingham puts together, so that this this whole thing holds together. Yes, because the way they arrange them and put them together, these bare, uh, angry, sorrowful, sad songs by three different people hold together as one record, and you don't think about it being what it is. Right. But it's worth sitting down to listen to. Because it will, it's, it's, it never hurts to get your, yourself refreshed on, on great records. That's what I did. That's what this book did for me. It made me go back and listen to records we've heard a million times. And I have them on vinyl, and I've heard them. They're on AOR radio. We've heard, you and I grew up in an era where they were on the radio every second of every day. So you don't want to go back. It's like we were talking about Saturday Night Fever. When I think of Saturday Night Fever, you know, it was everywhere. But then you go back and listen to those records like we did when we played the, uh, the um, Disco, Inferno. Disco Inferno. And you realize how brilliant this is and how you, it makes perfect sense. It was totally nailed the zeitgeist. If I may, before you play this song, I do want to say your point about Lindsey Buckingham, which is spot on. When I was listening, the thing that has to be said about Buckingham and this band live, which I have to admit, I never saw them, never thought of them as a great live band, thought of them as a great studio and songwriting band. But... Those live tracks that are on the deluxe for both of those records, those shows, and even the Tusk one, are spe- his guitar playing, he's the only guitar player. I mean, this guy is Townsend, man. He is Clapton in this. He's keeping it, he's playing ripping solos, he's playing cool background, tasty stuff, picking on the, on the electric and the acoustic. He's keeping the whole damn thing together with that great rhythm section, certainly with McVie and, and Fleetwood. And it's just an excellent live band. And of course, she's a spectacular front woman. So, I mean, it's it's funny. It it may have been what like, it's what made them. They are an absolutely stunning, complicated, jagged rock band. But he's able to produce them all as if it's so tasteful. He 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 holds back some of that stuff to make it all hold together, and yeah. it works. But I also feel like in a way, and it made them massive. Right. But it, sometimes you you wish. Uh, when you listen to live stuff, you wish a little more of that had gotten through sometimes because it is jagged, powerful, angry, absolutely visceral I stuff. I was shocked. But, but it doesn't always come through in the recorded versions. But it's like – I can't tell you though. I mean like those records are perfect records and they're worth listening to because there's so much more in them. You've been listening to them in a way where you've been glossing over it. But if you sit down with those two records, they will knock you out with the instrumental virtuosity and the passion. And the heartbreak. And I the mean, fact that they reinvented this band. Let's not forget, this is a 60s blues band. Well, they reinvented Peter Green's band 30 band. times. 30 times, but that's amazing how after like four or five, this was a band on its last legs, going to be kicked off the label, and they get these two young musicians who are struggling, living in squalor in Los Angeles, trying to make it, uh, and uh, Sound City put them up and recorded their, their demos, and then here's Mick Fleetwood, he wanders into Sound City just to hear what it sounds like, and they said, well, this is what we recorded here two weeks ago, listen to this to get the drum sound in here. And he's like, who the hell are these people? And the next thing you know, it, man, Fleetwood Mac is reinvented. And those two first records are just – they really are. They, they're very under – and I found that Tusk – because I dismissed Tusk for years because it's a double album. It, it can be ponderous. Um, it's not. It's, it's there – probably if it was a single album, it would have been as good as those other two records. I mean it's just – I mean this band uh, – sometimes you should sit down and read about the history of Fleetwood Mac because – 
they are many, many different bands, many which bands. just happen to have a rhythm section that stays. Yes. You know, they, they grow out of John Mayall's blues, you know, a band, and they, you know, there's a version with Peter Green, there's a version later with Danny Kerwan, yeah, and Bob uh, Welch. Uh, Bob Welch. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of different versions of Fleetwood Mac right. before you get to this one. Right. Um, but I want to play you Silver Springs because as good as Rumors is, this got left off the record. And this, <laughs> man, this is a really, really good song. So this is uh, Stevie Nicks. Hammering raw, her boyfriend. Raw Stevie Nicks. <laughs> it was a B-side. It was the first B-side off one of the singles that Cameron was Yeah, done, it was. This is Silver Springs.
man, as she starts to dig in and sing the outro to that song, and the lyric, time casts a spell on you, but you won't forget me. I know I could have loved you, but you would not let me. I'll follow you down till the sound of my voice will haunt you. You'll never get away from the sound of the woman that loves you. I'll follow you down to the sound of my voice will haunt you. And then she sings, was I just a fool? You'll never get away from the sound of the woman that loves you. Was I just a fool? I mean, she, and she's digging in on those. And the wild thing is the harmonies are him. You know, it's like, yes. and some Christine McVie, but man, that, that, that's her response to go your own way, which was his like, okay, fine, fuck you. And she's like, really? Fuck you. And, and says this. And, right. but it's like, and his song is like, I'm trying to give you love, but you won't take it. And they're that's both saying it saying. to each other, you know? Yes. And, and this, this was going on prior to that record because I also found out, which I never knew Landslide was written, here's one for you, in Warren Zevon's in-law's apartment in Aspen. She stayed there with Lindsay to take a break because they knew Warren from, you know, Wadi in the first record. And she went out there, the, the Bezelfolds, which, which was uh, Crystal, who I interviewed for my book's parents, she stayed out there. He, they had a huge blowout. He left her there. So she wrote the whole thing, staring out at – she saw a landslide come off the mountain. And she wrote the song about him leaving her and, and how she was getting older and nothing was ever going to happen. This was before even they joined Fleetwood Mac. So it's, it's like, it, this, this battle between the two of them, this angst, this on again, off again, writing the songs, recording songs with each other, ripping each other, and talking about how much they love each other and the other person doesn't love them, goes on for album after album. And it's it's actually for fans of the music, the way we do in deconstructing it. That last verse is quoted about 20 times in the Davis book because about her haunting him. Because oh, yeah. every time she would record a solo album or something, she was like trying to one-up Lindsay because he made her feel that he had, and she did, she felt like because she wasn't really a musician she, he would complete her work. She gives him all the credit in the world for completing all of her early songs, including Landslide and Dreams and this song. And, but she always felt like she couldn't complete songs without him. And that also you know, was her battle with him. It's very, very interesting dynamic, amazingly so. Yeah, I mean, and fuck, what a song. It's a great song. I mean, yeah, it's... It's it, all in there. It's so good. Uh, and uh, just that... the the. The early kind of sort there's no chorus in there, but the early the way the verses end, you know, it's so romantic. You could be my silver springs, blue green colors flashing. I would be your only dream, your shining autumn o- ocean crashing. But then each verse ends with, "And did you say she was pretty? And did you say that she loves you, baby? I don't want to know. You know, it's like <laughs> yeah, I, I could have been all this for you, but you're off with this other girl. And yeah, I don't I don't care. Fine." You think she's pretty. You think she loves you. You know, I'll begin not to love you. Turn around, see me running. I'll say I loved you years ago. Tell myself you never loved me. No. And did you say she was pretty? And did you say that she loves you? Baby, I don't want to know. Oh, no. And can you tell me it was worth it, really? I don't want to know. And then the, the outro, the time casts a spell on me, but you won't forget me. And the 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 almost it's almost like a curse she lays on him there you know i know i could have loved you but you would not let me i'll follow you down till the sound of my voice will haunt you and you'll never get away from the sound of the woman that loves you i mean it's this gently building curse she lays on him at the end of the song it is <laughs> like it kind of comes true you know cuz i'm not sure he ever gets over it it's a problem for him for the rest of their career and his life and he has a lot of d- emotional difficulties later uh 
you know. He probably had some kind of imbalance. He was, they were all on drugs, certainly, but they, yeah. they, they, they found out later on he had some kind of imbalance that he needed to be on medication. He, had, he would have these outbursts. Plus, he put a lot of pressure on himself to produce the band. So he's writing songs, he's interpreting Stevie's songs, and he's putting these songs together. Uh, and the rest of the band showing up, you know, you know drugged out, and they're, they're working hard, but Lindsay had to keep his shit together and keep, as you said, keep the band together sonically and emotionally and uh, physically in many ways. So... It was a lot of it was a lot on him. It's a fascinating story, Fleetwood Mac, and, and Adam's right. Do yourself a favor, even if you were inundated as a kid, or you, maybe a new generation hasn't heard these records, but those records are spectacular. But that song you will not find on any of them uh, unless you get the. Deluxe well, I'm sure CD if you buy versions. it now, it's 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 uh, probably included on their CDs. I don't know. Silver CD, Springs right. was a B side. It's it's on a lot of the deluxe version, which at this point you might as well just buy the deluxe version. Yes. You know? Yeah, the live versions alone, the live stuff alone. I mean, I was, I just couldn't get off of it on Spotify. So, anyway, turning the page, if you will, to another band that's very emotive that I, that you and I really love. Yeah, you know, I was think I've been listening to Gang of Youth a little more lately as I, they're coming back to play in New York in December. Really looking forward to going to that, and then uh, I realized they were going to be in Austin last night and tonight, and we were out in California, and I was thinking about like. Do I want to stop in Austin on the way home? Just get change the flight, go to Austin, and go see them at Antone's. Uh, and in the end, just decided like, I'm just too tired. I you got off of tour and was home for like four days before I had to go out west again. And I just, we just all really wanted to get home, um, and I didn't. But you know, I I was thinking about it, and I actually texted. I was just I had been listening to a lot of Gang of You, so I actually I, got, I was on Instagram and I, I found David Lopepe's uh, Instagram and I actually wrote him. Just say, man, I just love your records. You're you're out of this world. I, you know, on Instagram, you don't know if anyone's even going to get those because if you're not someone's friend on there, it just goes into this other file of right. other people. But then I got a letter back from him. He's like, hey, man, that's amazing. I'm a huge, you know, we started talking about music and his records and my records that influenced us, you know, things that I've been listening to of his and things that were a big deal for him when he was coming up. And I told him I might come to Austin, but... Uh, Ended up just feeling like we needed to go home, but I, it, you know, I was spending a lot of time listening to that uh, that record, um, "Go Farther in Lightness" last week, and this one song uh, that I hadn't listened to as much in the past was really. We played a couple of their songs in an yeah. earlier podcast. Yeah, we did. We, we played uh, when I stole your CD. <laughs> I think I gave you that. You're like, I'm never lending you another CD. Then you gave me all those stews, which are fantastic. I can't get enough of that right now. But We played Fear and Trembling, the opening track, and then the one you wanted to play. Did you play Keep Me in the Open? Was that the one you played? Yes. Yeah. yeah which, uh, and, uh, but I was listening to the latter part of the record. Sometimes when records are really are long records, you don't necessarily get to the end. I'm used to people not necessarily making the greatest CDs that really go all the way to the end, and I right. think I had missed some of the end of this record. Because uh, it's got 15 or 16 songs on it. There's a couple I, at the end. Don't they kind of tie in together? They, they there's kinda... a few that do. But one of them, uh, it was just... I mean, I had this song that I wrote for uh, for Black Sun for the play. The shortest goodbyes are the ones that can kill a girl. And there's a, a line in there about the different kinds of size that I wish I could remember the line. But he's got this, this song called The Deepest Size... The Frankish Shadows. And the first verse is, There's a sky full of lights and none of them stars. But each white silvery flicker is a faithful reminder to us of a weight that's in youth 
that makes a dick of us all. If it happened today, then it's probably happened before. In a crowd unfamiliar, I just want to touch a familiar face and make friends at the parties I feared the likes of an age. To be wanted with truth and make formidable love. See light in myself that I see inside everyone else I know. The chorus is because not everything means something, honey. So say the unsayable, say the most human of things. And if everything is temporary, I will bear the unbearable, terrible triteness of being. Alone in my house, frozen in time, but don't get me wrong now, honey, I am trying. Um, and then the later verse, there's a warmth in the eyes and a clearness of thought when the deepest of sighs and the frankest of shadows are gone. We're pushing a stone up a mountainous waste and the lines at the store look like lines on a beautiful face. See, I'm not so assured, nor unusually strong or outstandingly brave. I'm more just fumbling around in the dark for the bulk of my day. When there's weight that's in youth and the sum of it's small, I will stand in the darkness and laugh with my heel on its throat. And not everything means something, honey. So say the unsayable. Say the most human of things. And if everything is temporary... I will bear the unbearable, terrible triteness of being. Alone in my house, frozen away, but don't get me wrong now, honey, I'm okay. And, and it's a song about, like, I have trouble with this a lot in life, too, which is that, like, you struggle to find meaning in things, you know, and, you, and you're scared of whether things are meaningless. But he responds to that. That's exactly what this song is about. What if none of this means anything? But his response is quite different. His response is, if there's no meaning to anything, that gives me the right to imbue it all with meaning myself. Right. I can give everything the meaning I want to give it. Right. And if there's like no Nietzsche. meaning, that's actually not the end of the world. It just mm -hmm. means that it's a blank slate and I will choose what to love, what to care about, you know. Sure. Master and of your own moral universe. That, that, that chorus, because not everything means something, honey. So say the unsayable. Say the most human of things. Fill the vacuum. Yeah. Fill the void with... The most human. The most the, human. Just the things that we feel, you know? Right. And if everything is temporary, I will bear the unbearable, terrible triteness of being. Mm -hmm. I will deal... If everything is temporary, I will deal with that. And he's, he's, obviously, he's making a play on the unbearable lightness of being. being. The, yeah. the, the Kundera book. Right. But he's, you know... And his, his singing is so emotive, and I love when you read lyrics uh, on the show, uh, and, it, and it gears us up for what we're going to hear. But you've said it many times, this is not poetry, it's songwriting, and it's music. So when he sings it, it really comes through. He's not, he really sells these songs beautifully, I think. I think that his baritone voice, the structure of the songs, and the way he takes over is very unique of him. Yeah. I, I think he's absolutely incredible. Now, I'm only familiar with that one record. I'm only familiar with this record. I'm not familiar with his earlier stuff. Or... We could keep coming back to this record for for yeah, for months. On yeah, this we podcast. could. We could. There's we so could. much. There is. I, I I recommend to you. I cannot recommend highly enough how you should explore Gang of Youths because this guy is the real deal. A live wire. Yeah. He is a he is a his entire performance. When I see videos of him. His singing just on the record, it's like he's stuck his finger into the socket, mm -hmm. and he is lit. And he just, and the band is spectacular. You know, I want to play this song. This is The Deepest Size, The Frankest Shadows by Gang of Youths from Go Farther in Lightness. Dig this. 
sky full of light And none of them star But each white silvery flicker Is a faithful reminder What you want Of a weight that's in youth That makes a dick of a soul If it happened today Then it's probably happened before Crowd unfamiliar, I just wanna touch your familiar face And make friends at the parties, I fear the likes of an age To be wanted with truth, and make formidable love See light in myself that I see inside everyone else I know
So say the unsayable, say the most human of things. If everything is temporary, I will bear the unbearable, terrible triteness of being. Uh, we should mention that this band, too, uh, totally gets it and totally backs up. They're all in. We've talked about that many times on this podcast, too, the bands that are all in for their singer-songwriter. And um, in this case, this band is just kicking it. Uh, the guitar parts, when it goes up, like a, just like a small little octave, and it just drives, that guitar that just drives it. My, my favorite part of the song, though, is when he holds... With the I will stand in the darkness and laugh with my heel on its throat, and he holds throat the first time, and that's it's nothing but a snare in him, and he's holding it like those eighth notes, and then uh, later he he does the throat and he he kind of comes down a little bit. That's really holding the emotion of a song and bringing you into that uh, what I guess is the chorus there, uh, the bridge into the chorus. It's it's really great songwriting and great performance by the band. It's a great band. And it's, that's an excellent song to play. It's a good example of what this record does. There's, there's dynamics on this record. It has homages to so many great bands that we love, and, uh, but yet it's also original. It's really beautiful. That's a great, great song. Yeah, I mean, he is, is a stunningly beautiful heart of a person. And, and he's saying that, you know. So say the unsayable, say the most human of things. You know, that's like... This, I want to play you one more song because we've played a couple other songs that were a lot like that song, you know, with the big epic nature of the band. Right. But I want to play one that's a little more restrained because it also shows they're able to do that too. Yeah, and I like that stuff too. I think that's this, one of the songs that I played was also like a mellow, sort yeah, of yeah. very dramatic song. Yeah, they could do both. Yeah. This one is, is, is a much more like controlled song, but it's – I think it might have been the single down there. And yeah, this band is huge in Australia. They, this is the record of the year the last few years. Both of the records they've made have been like, you know, the equivalent of winning our Grammy and MTV Awards put together, I think. Um, but, you know, they're, they're new here. They're doing some shows this summer with uh, Foo Fighters as well in America. Um, Next year? You mean this coming No, this, coming this summer. Or, or not this summer. This uh, fall. The autumn. They're, yeah. they're doing big shows with Foo Fighters in the next month. And then oh, they're coming great. here in December, I think. Uh, another tour by themselves or, or headlining in December. This song is like... It's a pop hit down there, but it's a brilliant piece of music, and uh, it's called "Let Me Down Easy." I, I just want to tell you, like the some of the lyric, because I think it's I don't know what, whatever, because I want to. <laughs> Honey, it's no secret that with matters of the heart, unreserved, I'm irrational and rarely ever start. But since the world's dark and often he- inhumane, relish our condition. Come drinking in the rain, because you remember when after Paris we all decided the best way to fight it was drink wine, dance here, and pray. And make love that lasts with a vengeance. So you can join the crowds all aboard the outrage train. You can stay afraid or slit the throat of fear and be brave. And scratch the little itch till you're moving like a motherfucker up in this bitch. You wanted to fight for a cause? Then go out and fall in love. Don't stop, don't stop believing in truth and grace in the grievance. You want someone to want you for who you are? I want someone to try. Or let me down easy, easy tonight. Easy, easy tonight. That's the first verse and chorus. And the last one, honey, it's no secret that I've been losing my way in the weirdest of moments and the stupidest of ways. But hey, I'm still young and it's going to be okay. I got solipsism, baby, and I brought lemonade. I'll surrender then all my balance 
and be excited and drink to tonight. It's not a, a bad time, time spent with you. There's cool lights and songs with good lyrics. We never have to talk again, whatever, up to you. But since you're putting up with me, here's another toast just to you. Let's dance off the beat, then mosey out together and say goodbye on the street. You wanted to fight for a cause? Then go out and love someone. Don't stop. Don't stop believing in truth and personal freedom. I want someone to want me for who I am. I want someone to try or let me down easy. Easy tonight. Easy. Easy tonight. Uh, <laughs> there's a part in the middle of the song where he says, that's like a little bridge. If it's late, you're drunk and wanting a reason, some reason yeah. to live. Yeah. I always, I always say, just put on some white snake. <laughs> like a, that's in the middle of the song. Yeah, I, is, I yeah. meant to read that and forgot to, but yeah, uh, that's good. Anyways, this has led me down that. easy, and then we'll probably come back and, and sign off for today. All right, All right. gang of youths from Go Farther in Lightness, let me down easy.
secret that I've been losing my way In the weirdest of moments, in the stupidest of ways But hey, I'm still young, it's gonna be okay I got solipses and baby, and I brought lemonade I'll surrender them, all my balance And be excited and drink tea tonight It's not a, a bad time, time spent with you There's cool lights and songs with good lyrics But never have to talk again, whatever up to you But since you're putting up with me Here's another toast just to you Let's dance off the beat and mosey out together And say goodbye It's a really great song. Yeah, I mean, it's all coming back to me now because I haven't heard this record in a while. But yeah, this is, uh, you're right, it's a little later in the record. But I love how he, he sticks in, I, I got solipsism, baby. First of all, because he's using solipsism in a song. And what is songwriting if it's not the ultimate solipsism? <laughs> uh, you know, completely, uh, you know, inward thinking and, and everything's about you and everything goes through you and how you view the world. And, and that's, as a writer, even as a songwriter, but as a writer, I totally get that. I think it's 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 adorable, and how he says "baby," and then of course references White Snake later. It's a conversation, uh, but it's a con- uh, it's a great rhythm. That, again, the band is right there with him, giving him a foundation to kind of speak, sing that song. You know? Yeah, and I've watched videos of him performing, and it's, he doesn't play the guitar on the song. He just dances and <laughs> sings, and it's this sinuous, totally cool rock and roll snake dance. <laughs> that he does on stage, and it's so unfettered mm. and free, and it's beautiful, and it's rock and roll, and it's it's this guy, man, David Lepepe. He is the real the real deal, man. And I I hope this catches on in America, and I, I can't encourage you all enough. Go out and get this record, or go on Spotify and listen to this record. It's called "Go Farther in Lightness." It's I think just from last year. It might be two thousand. I think it's two thousand seventeen. 2008, I don't know. It's so fucking good, and this is the next... They're the next U2 in some ways. I don't know. They're, yeah, there's they a lot of be, U2 in there. Yeah. They, they just they have that quality of, of vulnerability, of real emotion and feeling, and a shitload of epic, slamming rock and roll to go with mm-hmm. it. And he is a, a great writer. Yeah, he's got a lot of you strummer know. in him. There's a, there's a lot of that in there. A lot, a lot of Springsteen. Springsteen's got a lot of... All the stuff that you love. They're the guys who really put it Tom down. Waits in him, too. You know, Tom like, Waits, yes. Um, I love the uh, expletives and every song. Yes. He's got, he's got a lot of things in him. And, and <laughs> Kerouac. This is a guy who's worth... This is a voice that's worth listening to. Agreed. We're probably... we got, we got to stop for today. That's yes. about enough for today. And uh, we have a big thing coming up this week and a lot to do. And... Uh, I think we're going to try and record uh, a lot of uh, the acoustic sessions here uh, during this during the uh, the Under festival, and we'll try and interview a lot of the musicians who are playing and Can't talk wait. to people about things. Yes. And uh, hopefully, we'll be able to put it all together on podcasts. This is Adam. <laughs> I'm here with my friend. 
Uh, James, peace, everybody. And this has been the Underwater Sunshine Podcast yet again. See you late. So you sure you don't want to put something in there like thanks? Late. Uh, Peace. There you go. (laughs) 